calling all aspiring investment professionals. Get a leg up on the competition. Final registration for the August CFA exam ends on May 14th. Register now to secure your spot. The CFA designation is a gold standard in the investment world, opening doors to high-powered careers and impressive salaries. Head over to cfainstitute.org to register. Don't wait. Take control of your finance career today. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Take 15 podcast from CFA Institute. I'm Lauren Foster, and this is the show where we bring you an unbiased lens on investing and capital markets through short conversations with some of the world's most interesting and accomplished people. This week, it's my colleague Richard Fernand over in London, who's in the host seat. He sat down with Randall Krosner, former member of the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve and currently a professor of economics at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business. They discussed the policy responses of central banks to the current crisis, the impact on savers of moving up the risk curve, and Randall's proposal for a coordinated response to bailouts. I hope you enjoy their conversation. Randall, welcome. Thanks for joining us today. So perhaps we can uh, attend first to central banks and their reaction to the current uh, COVID-19 crisis. So can you talk a little bit about their reactions and how perhaps they, um, how they different and maybe who you think has got it right? So this is a big shock and a very different kind of shock than we've had from before, but a lot of what central banks did is use the playbook from a decade or 15 years ago when, they were, uh, when we had the, uh, the global financial crisis. The first thing that central banks try to do is provide liquidity to the market. And in particular, the Fed did that by committing to purchase lots of assets, uh, by reducing interest rates down to zero, and basically reviving all the programs that, um, that we pioneered when I was there a little bit more than a decade ago, um, that um, they just, over weekend, uh, were able to, um, uh, to bring up. And that was back in, uh, in, in March. And I think that was something that was very important because um, one of the concerns was that the markets were seizing up. And, um, and also uh, something that's similar to what happened um, a, a decade ago is that globally, people wanted dollar liquidity. And so if you're in Japan or if you're in, um, uh, in the UK uh, or in, uh, in South America, you, people didn't want the local currency, they wanted dollar, um, dollar liquidity. And so one of the programs that we had done a decade ago which the Fed uh, immediately revived. Here were these swap arrangements. So the Fed could provide uh, US dollars to uh, the ECB, to the Bank of Japan, to, uh, to a whole variety of, uh, of banks around the, around the world. And, and that was very, very important in helping to ease some of the uh, market dysfunction and, uh, and liquidity problems that were happening in March. I think of kind of the first step of what they did is they, they took out a, um, what I would call a, a market dysfunction discount. U.S. Treasury securities, that market wasn't even working. And if, you, if people feel that they can't sell Treasury securities quickly, they get worried that they can't sell other things. So they say, oh my goodness, I don't want to be the last one left with all these, so I'm going to dump all of them now. And you started to see this just pounding down of asset prices everywhere, this downward spiral. And I think um, uh, the Fed providing liquidity and then providing dollar liquidity around the world, the other central banks taking it up and providing that locally, and then also providing their uh, liquidity in their own local currencies was crucial in making sure that um, 
uh, things didn't continue to to move south, and I think that was a very important first step in the uh, in the recovery of asset prices, but also very important in making sure that we didn't slip off the rails uh, when uh, COVID first hit. So, so how coordinated do you think the, the central banks were in, in response to this crisis? Well, certainly one of the things that we did when I was there a decade ago, so I'll, I'll draw on, the, on that experience, was um, everyone knew that demand was for dollars. Even a decade ago when you know ground zero of the subprime crisis was the U.S., people still wanted U.S. dollars. They didn't want other, other currencies. Very similar here. And because a lot of the players that had that experience, I think it was very easy for them to say, ah, this is what we need right now. I think the Fed, since it had done it before, it was very easy to stand up that facility and provide that. And, um, and so it was coordinated in that way. It wasn't that there was one person who said, you must do this. I think everyone knew there was a really strong demand for dollar liquidity as well as local currency liquidity. And that was the key first step to stabilize things. To then give a little bit of time to think about what's next. Mm -hmm. So how about other central banks and how they responded? How would you assess them? So I think most central banks around the world have uh, have tried to respond fairly boldly and uh, try to bring interest rates down significantly, buying assets. I mean, we see that whether it's the, the Bank of England, uh, the ECB, the, the Bank of Japan. And so uh, uh, realizing that this is going to be a really, really tough period. Um, people have different views of whether it's going to be a uh, sharp down and sharp up or it's going to be a long way to, to come back. I'm of the view that I think it's going to be a pretty long, long time before we're back where we were before, at least in, in most countries. There'll be some that will come back more, more quickly. But I'd say in the, the U.S., uh, Europe, most of Asia, it's going to take uh, much uh, much longer time as, well as Latin America, emerging market countries, uh, emerging market countries too, and so so I think they've um, uh, they've stepped up to the plate pretty quickly. Part of that is because of the experience of what happened a decade ago. So a lot of the programs that uh, were useful then could be stood up fairly quickly. But the Fed, as well as other central banks, have done more than they had done before, um, providing. Uh, loans to, uh, to, to, uh, to, uh, to different firms, uh, buying uh, municipal securities, buying below investment rate securities. That's something that the, the Fed didn't do, uh, do a decade ago. So I think good, quick response. The challenge is what's next? And, um, and this is one of the reasons why you hear so many central bankers, particularly Jay Powell in the U.S., talking so much about fiscal policy. Because central bankers don't want to be the only game in town. They can be quick first responders and extremely important first responders because without that liquidity, uh, it's going to be very difficult for credit markets to function, for security markets to function, for uh, credit allocation to, uh, to occur. Um, but that's a necessary condition, but not sufficient. And so um, they realize that a lot of the issues are going to be ones that they can't address directly. Central banks can't deal with bringing back the air transportation system. They can't bring back the hospitality sector. They can make it cheaper for households to borrow and for companies to borrow. But there are very specific sectoral hits that uh, only fiscal policy can deal with, as well as the challenges that households and individuals face. It's really only through fiscal policy that their challenges can be, uh, be faced. And so central banks don't want to be the only game in town. I think in many cases, fiscal authorities did step up very quickly. In the U.S., for example, passed a series of bills uh, spending $3 trillion, 15% of GDP. People thought, oh, the 
partisan US never get anything through? Well, we did very quickly. Now, subsequently, it's been more of a challenge, but the initial response was quite bold and, uh, and, uh, and, and quick. And I think that was true for a lot of countries. Now the challenge is the pivot to the kind of short run, well, let's hope it's a sharp down and sharp up. And so we shut the lights off in March and then back in April or May, um, we can make things good again, just you know, give enough money for people to, to, to live, uh, tough it out for a month or two. Well, we're now much further than that in, and we can see, unfortunately, a lot of challenges in many countries with, uh, with a second or even third wave, um, you know, further potential lockdowns, still a lot of, um, a lot of economic disruption, and, and I think also just fundamental structural shifts in economic behavior, consumer behavior, corporate behavior, people not going into the offices, people not going out to shop. This is not a short run thing. This is something that is going to have long, um, long consequences. And so that means that I think it's going to be a long, tough slog for a lot of people in the labor market. And that's why the central banks want to move things from their plate, which is more sort of a, a short run response to something that is going to you know, a pivot of policy to provide support as people are making the transition from one sector to another as they're dealing with some of these longer spells of unemployment and as the economy more fundamentally restructures. So, so focusing on this idea of, of kind of short run versus long run. So with central banks cutting rates, then obviously the, you know, the reason they're doing that is to try and stimulate borrowing and, and, and spending and stimulate the flow of money in the economy. But it has perhaps an unintended consequence that um, savers or plan sponsors will end up moving inevitably into asset classes where they perhaps feel that they can get higher returns, perhaps for giving up liquidity or taking on complexity, and that there could perhaps be longer term unintended consequences of forcing people up that, that risk spectrum. So yeah, as a former central banker, how would, you, how would you think about that? And how would you weigh those kind of long-term concerns against this, this short-term um, yeah, acute need? That's a very important question. And, uh, and so, and you're exactly right. One of the things that central banks are trying to do by reducing rates and, uh, and, buying, uh, and buying assets is to push people out along the risk curve to make sure that credit is flowing not just to um, short-term U.S. Treasury securities, but more broadly in the economy for innovators, entrepreneurs, or even traditional companies that want to continue to, uh, to produce and, uh, and invest. And so that is, in some sense, exactly what um, central banks are trying to do in the short-term intermediate run to make sure that intermediation is still occurring, that the credit is, uh, is still flowing. Um, the challenge is how do you pull back from that in a safe way that doesn't cause a taper tantrum, that doesn't cause uh, volatility in, uh, in markets? And I think that's one of the reasons why, again, you see central bankers talking a lot about fiscal policy and the importance of that to make sure that um, when they start taking the punch bowl away, or that at some point they will want to do that, that there's a firm foundation for a restructured economy, for people making the transition. And because um, otherwise it becomes really problematic if over very, very long periods of time, the central banks are the only ones providing the uh, support to the economy, because that raises these concerns that you can get uh, a reach for yield, that people can take on excess risk or an excess amount of debt. In the short run, 
you want to survive. And so uh, you're willing to make some, uh, some trade-offs. And, and one of the things that we've seen very interestingly is a lot of companies around the world uh, issuing both debt and equity. Um, I mean, there's been a worldwide boom in that, which is also just as an aside kind of funny because people said, oh, you can never issue debt or issue equity without doing road shows and seeing people in person. Well, nobody was traveling as trillions of dollars of, of debt and equity were, uh, were being sold and snapped up, uh, snapped up around the world. So I think we've, we've learned a lot that we can do things we never thought we could do before. And, um, and then, um, so a lot more, uh, a lot more security issuance, obviously equity is a great thing to provide more of a capital cushion, um, and more of a cushion against, uh, against losses if things go wrong. Debt, it depends on what you, it's used for. If you're issuing some debt because you have the opportunity to do that now, because you're worried about the future and you want to secure yourself and create uh, something closer to a fortress balance sheet, that, and so that you husband those, uh, those resources, that you keep the extra liquidity, so if there's another lockdown, if there's another round of the virus, you're more likely to survive, that actually can be helpful for economic uh, stability. But if you're taking on debt and just paying out lots of dividends or uh, just uh, spending um, uh, in a very speculative way, that's much more much more problematic. So, so we don't want to just say that all debt is bad or taking on more debt is bad. It really depends on what it's being used for. If you're building the fortress balance sheet, which a lot of firms, not all firms, but many firms have done, given the opportunity, I think that's what central banks wanted them to do um, because that makes them more resilient if a next round or or two rounds of, of shocks come. So speaking of kind of future shocks, um, if we move beyond this current, if, if you like, kind of epidemic natural type shock, no doubt there will be another economic shock that ha happens in the future. So two questions on that. One is, is there anything that gives you um, sort of pause or a sign for concern that might lead to right to to that future economic shock, and then and the related question then is, and what's left in the central bank toolkit to deal with such a shock if it comes? Well, hopefully uh, uh, we won't have any more shocks, and so that's that's my my hope. But uh, but as I always uh, teach in uh, classes at uh, at Chicago Business School there will be shocks that will come. And that's one of the things that, uh, uh, that I try to teach is getting people ready for thinking about that, being resilient for forthcoming um, uh, shocks and thinking about risk management in a proactive, uh, proactive way. I think that's extraordinarily important. Um, also, one of the things that I say, it's, it's very hard to predict these shocks. These are low probability events where we don't have a lot of evidence and data. And so rather than trying to predict the next pandemic, I think the best thing to do is to sort of break these complex and difficult to predict problems down to uh, smaller um, units that you can actually deal with. So you may not know whether it's going to be a pandemic or a cyber attack or um, some geopolitical risk, but you do know that it may cause a liquidity problem for you or may cause demand to decline uh, from your, uh, from your customers or disrupt to your supply chain. So you can break that bigger problem down to these pieces so you don't have to uh, spend your time, which I think is not a very good amount of time, try, or way, way of using time and trying to predict the next pandemic, but being ready for a series of shocks that have, um, have different characteristics, break it down into those pieces 
and then um, and then try to attack it in that way. So when the shock does come, you can pull off the shelf of A, B, um, you know, D and and L of the uh, elements are going to be most important here. And so I can pull those uh, those off and and, and be ready. Um, so I don't know what the next uh, shock will be, but I do know that one will come. There's no uh, no doubt about that. Um, these the ideas that we have moved beyond the business cycle and we're so robust that we'll never have another shock. Um, I, I'm just not uh, I'm just not uh, uh, a believer in in that. But there's also a second question. Oh, what what do oh, um, central banks? Yeah. What's what's still left in the central bank's toolkit? Hmm. Well. Um, Certainly, they can do more of the kinds of things that they've been doing. And so, um, as so many central bankers like uh, uh, like san and Bank of Japan has said, there's no limit to monetary easing. And man, he has proved that because uh, the Bank of Japan's balance sheet uh, has gone to more than 100% of GDP and keeps going. Uh, so, so there is a lot of room for central bankers to buy assets. The question is, though, they can still do that, but what's the impact? And that's one of the challenges, as we see in Japan, that there seems to be diminished impact, although the balance sheet is enormous. The quantitative and qualitative easing that the Bank of Japan has done is very bold and very large. Inflation still remains very low in Japan, um, and uh, he has not been able to, and the Bank of Japan has not been able to achieve anything close to their um, uh, their 2% uh, target. So I think one of the lessons from Japan, and I think one of the things we see in the bold, quick actions by the Fed, was to try to be ahead of the curve. Don't wait until we see what the consequences of the pandemic are. You're in early March, you go, oh my goodness, this is like to be very, very problematic. Like that, let's bring interest rates down to zero. Like that, let's set up all these um, uh, these uh, liquidity programs. So I think one of the things that central banks can do is try to be looking for the shocks coming on the horizon and when they start seeing them, to act quickly and uh, act boldly. Um, and as I said, I think they can still continue to do a lot of the sorts of things that they have done, like in terms of asset purchases. I'm sitting here in the in the UK, and as you can see, at, uh, right uh, in our uh, our wonderful uh, wonderful um, uh, new uh, campus here in uh, in London. And uh, I uh, uh, and one of the things that uh, they're exploring is negative interest rates. Um, uh, that uh, you know, obviously, Europe and many other countries and uh, Japan have had negative interest rates for quite some time. UK is exploring that. I don't think the US is likely to do that, um, but the uh, but certainly the UK is exploring that. So that's another possibility. Another thing that um, that the Fed has done is they've changed their monetary policy framework. Uh, they have have tried to change the way people view their responses to um, the current crisis as well as forthcoming crises by saying, okay. We have, we've had this uh, 2% inflation goal, but we've been undershooting it uh, ever since we announced it in, in 2012. And so we realized that we haven't been making it. And so rather than you, the public, or you, the markets, think, oh, well, you're not really serious about achieving it, they want to say, no, we really are serious about achieving it. So our goal is not just to get to 2%, but to have an average of 2% over an intermediate horizon. And so what that means is, since we've been missing it for so many years, we can run hot for a number of years, we can run above that. One of the key reasons for doing that, I think, is because the Fed doesn't want to explore negative interest rates. They don't want people to start to think, ah, they're not so serious about fighting low inflation or de uh, uh, deflation, and so allowing inflation expectations to come down. By doing this, they're hoping to boost 
inflation expectations, boost their credibility that they really will get to at least 2%, so they don't have to explore those negative rates. And so those kinds of um, forward guidance types of things, changes in, in frameworks, are things that central bankers are exploring. Um, uh, Philip Lane, uh, the chief economist at the uh, ECB, has just mentioned that um, that might be a possibility that the ECB would, uh, would consider. And so they have these other means. How effective will they be? That's hard to know because we haven't really tried these before in the, uh, in the extent that we've had them. How much will um, average inflation targeting really change expectations? I think a little bit, but I don't think it's, it's going to be the panacea. Um, I think they have to literally put their money where their mouth is. Um, and when they say they're going to do these things, they have to really buy a lot of assets. Uh, they have to um, really be, be very, uh, very aggressive to, um, uh, to change it or to make sure that expectations don't slip down. And they have to be um, proactive. That's one of the challenges for Bank of Japan. Even though Kurodasan has been very, very bold and very strong in the asset purchases, I think the central bank lost credibility earlier on because uh, the central bank was uh, was slow to uh, to respond. That's one piece of it, it's not the only piece. Um, so I think there is still um, uh, arrows in their quiver, but as you can see, there's a diminishing marginal impact of, of all of these as you use more of them. And again, this is why central bankers keep talking about fiscal policy, because they know that they can't do it alone. Excellent. So thanks. I mean, that's it's very, very helpful to think about that as a, a novel policy, if you like, that they're, that they're trying out. Um, now, this may be an unfair question, but I, I'm just curious. So do you, do you think there's, there's anything else that central banks really should think about trying down the line that they perhaps haven't had really the, the will to do so far? So is there anything left that you would kind of suggest from perhaps a novel perspective that, that they, they give some thought to? I think they've been pretty creative in uh, buying new types of assets and providing loans in different ways than they've done before. Uh, and, and obviously they do some coordination with, uh, with fiscal policy. Uh, and, and in challenging times, you certainly, you, you don't have to lose your independence and coordinate. You can be independent, but realize you can't do it alone. And so you want to, uh, uh, want to coordinate. And so, uh, I think those are the tools that central banks have, and really you'd, you'd have to set up other organizations or um, you'd have to set up something like, let's say, for example, an asset management company. So if you wanted to, um, uh, to deal with firms that are going into bankruptcy, and I fear that many companies may actually face that, we have, we've certainly faced some increases in, in bankruptcy in the US and other countries, but because of all of the, uh, the fiscal actions as well as the lowering of interest rates, that's helped to, to slow that. But we may face a lot of that down the line. Most central banks, or like at least the US Fed, is prevented from directly putting equity into firms. But you can set up an asset management company that can take over uh, firms, expedite the bankruptcy process, try to keep the ongoing concerns to avoid uh, just liquidation where you lay people off, but having some of the underlying activities really be good ones, and then try to reform a company. You separate out the uh, the, the financial burdens, the, the debt burdens, from the operational part of it. And if you have a good bankruptcy system, you can actually make everyone better off uh, because the ongoing concern value will allow more debt to be repaid rather than liquidation in the middle of a crisis. Why this sometimes happens that you get that is because if you don't have a good, uh, good bankruptcy system, everyone says, I want to get paid first. Or, yeah, it would be better if we had the ongoing concern. So just pay me off. 
I'll, I'll leave you alone and then you can run the company. The problem is when you don't have the, the right system, everyone has that me first, mm -hmm. um, me first desire, and then you get into a situation of liquidation that would be inefficient, and then more unemployment and a deeper recession that's uh, more difficult to come back from. Um, so I think that's, that's largely beyond what, uh, what central banks can do, but I think policymakers should think a lot about that. During the Great Depression, the U.S. had the Reconstruction Finance Corporation, uh, investing in uh, preferred stock of a lot of different kinds of organizations. Um, the, um, uh, their asset management companies that were set up during the savings loan crisis in the U.S. And so, and many other countries have had that. And so I think thinking about that to try to uh, smooth the transition to, to pivot from policy being just about turning the lights off and turning the lights back on to realizing some of these lights are not going to come back on and we have to do something about that and, and deal with that. Um, but hopefully in a, in a very efficient way, see which ones can be screwed back in and uh, the light comes on and which ones the power just isn't there. Great. Well, thank you. That's an excellent idea and I, I hope policymakers will look at that. So, Randall Crosner, thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate it. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider rating and reviewing us on iTunes or wherever you're listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts and it helps others find the show. Also, a quick reminder, this podcast isn't intended to provide expert advice on the topics we covered. If you need tax, accounting or legal advice, please consult a professional. I am Lauren Foster. Thanks so much for listening.